Mighty God and everlasting Father, we come before you desiring that your Holy Spirit would bring the unction of God to us this morning. We ask, O oh Lord, that you would be in the preaching and in the hearing, that you would open our ears to hear what you have to say, that we might conform to your word and thus conform to Christ, who is the living word. We so pray for your aid and your help, that you would illuminate the scriptures to us, that you would help us to understand this passage. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Genesis chapter 21, 1 to 21. And the Lord visited Sarah as he had said. And the Lord did for Sarah as he had spoken. For Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the set time of which God had spoken to him. And Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, who Sarah bore to him, Isaac. Then Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. Now Abraham was one hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made me laugh, and all those who hear will laugh with me. She also said, Who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? For I have borne him a son in his old age. So the child grew and was weaned, and Abraham made a great feast on the same day that Isaac was weaned. And Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, scoffing. Therefore she said to Abraham, Cast out this bondwoman and her son, for the son of this bondwoman shall not be heir with my son, namely with Isaac. And the matter was very displeasing in Abraham's sight because of his son. But God said to Abraham, Do not let it be displeasing in your sight because of the lad or because of your bondwoman. Whatever Sarah has said to you, listen to her voice, for in Isaac your seed shall be called. Yet I will also make a nation of the son of the bondwoman, because he is your seed. So Abraham rose early in the morning and took bread and a skin of water, and putting it on her shoulder, he gave it and the boy to Hagar and sent her away. Then she departed and placed the boy under one of the shrubs. Then she went and sat down across from him at a distance of about a bowshot. For she said to herself, Let me not see the death of the boy. So she sat opposite him and lifted her voice and wept. She had departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. And the water skin, water in the skin was used up. And she placed the boy under one of the shrubs. Then she went and sat down across from him at a distance about a bowshot, for she said to herself, Let me not see the death of the boy. So then she sat opposite him and lifted her voice and wept. Then God heard the voice of the lad, and the angel of God called the Hagar out of heaven and said to her, What ails you, Hagar? Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the lad where he is. Arise, lift up the lad, and hold him with your hand, for I will make him a great nation. Then God opened her eyes and she saw a well of water, and she went and filled the skin with water and gave the lad a drink. So God was with the lad, and he grew and dwelt in the wilderness and became an archer. He dwelt in the wilderness of Paran, and his mother took a wife for him from the land of Egypt. May the Lord bless the reading of his word to us. Here we find in verses 1 through 27, 1 through 7, that Isaac is born, the heir of promise. 
And we're going to look this week and next week at taking God seriously in his word. The Lord, in verse 1, visited Sarah as he had said. And the Lord did for Sarah as he had spoken. Visited means to attend to with care. And in this action, a great change will occur. As he had said, as he had spoken, is repetition. It's a repetition of some of the same words with some different nuances, but God always supports his spoken word. So he came at the set time. It was the appointed time, or literally the place of revelation. Not a normal scene. We have an old woman here who's going to bear some children, Isaac, and God spoken promise is upheld that she would do so. So, she does. She has this child, and Abraham names his son and circumcises his son as God so told him, as he commanded him. We see that there's action as a consequence of God's word given to them. Another mark of the appointed time that God showed up at this particular time, is the fulfillment of the promise that Abraham was 100 years old. Verse 5, as God had said. And as God had said, they were to name him Isaac. The wordplay of laughter. Isaac's name. Seen as jubilee. As the seed is rejoiced over by Sarah. She says, they will laugh with me now because of the great things God has done. So the laughter here is a play on words. Isaac's name and Sarah's final outcome in upholding the promise in her heart. Hagar and Ishmael, however, are rejected. Verses 8 through 21 demonstrate that. The miraculous bodily generation of Sarah As she weaned the child. Imagine that. God regenerated her body to be able to not only bear children, but accomplish all of the motherly tendencies that she needed to have in weaning the child. However, Ishmael mocks, scoffs the promised seed. And the words laugh and mock are related. And so, again, another word play arises. Ishmael did not take the child or the promise seriously because he's the firstborn. So in thinking about this particular situation, having Ishmael and the tension that is going to be in the camp, Ishmael scoffing at God's word, Sarah instructs Abraham to reject the woman and the boy and cast them out of the house. Ishmael shall not be the heir. Yet this displeased, or even has a nuance of literally was evil to Abraham, because Ishmael was his son. But, here, it wasn't them just simply concocting a plan at this time, or what seemed best to Sarah. In the midst of the turmoil, God speaks again. Verses 12 and 13. In Isaac shall your seed be called. And here, Abraham is instructed to listen to Sarah, All of her words are true. They come from God. He had reservations from the last time, but here he did so. 
The last time that he and Sarah concocted a plan, they simply did it. Here, he was reserved to do what Sarah said until God then told him, this is what you are to do. Hagar and Ishmael leave. They go out into the wilderness. They run out of food. They almost die. She actually leaves the boy under a shrub and goes off 20 or 30 yards from him because she doesn't want to see his death. And the boy is heard by God in anguish. Verse 17. God hears Ishmael. Hears his moaning. And then speaks to Hagar as he did in the past. He spoke to Hagar before, as you recall, that she had left and God told her to return. But he tells her to lift him from the ground and bring him to drink at the well, which God allowed her to see. Then God opened her eyes and she saw the well of water. Each of the problems that occur in this passage end with a resolution that is set upon the oracle or word of God. There's a problem in the camp. Some thought is put into it, but God, his word stands. His word demonstrates what's to be done. Hagar and Ishmael are in the wilderness. They're about to die. The boy is groaning. God hears again by his word. Resolution takes place. And then we find a a short little epilogue that Ishmael grows up. He dwells in the wilderness. He becomes an archer. And Hagar goes back to her people and gets a wife for her son among the pagans. She forgets rather quickly the God in which she had seen great things in Abraham. And instead goes back to Egypt. Well, looking at this particular text, I want to put out, pull out a couple of important points about taking God's word seriously or the way that the saints should demonstrate their conversation here on earth. And Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him Isaac. Then Abraham circumcised his son Isaac as God had commanded him. And Sarah said, God has made me laugh. Do you see what he did? Why he did it? And the importance of his actions. There are four things to see being pulled out of this text that surrounds God's word and response to it. First, that God always fulfills his word to his people. Second, that his people are to take his word seriously. Third, that his people, when they take God's word seriously, show it. And fourth, people do not take God's word seriously when they're lost. Let's look at the first one. That God always fulfills his word to his people. Here, we have the propagation of the promised seed. Isaac, Genesis 3.15 says that the Christ is going to come and the cryptic saying of the one who's going to crush the head of the serpent. The promised seed begins in Genesis, is propagated all through Genesis, is the foundation of Genesis. And find here that God told Abraham that he would have a son with Sarah, and he did. The promised seed is coming. And we know this to be the work of God from the miraculousness of the conception and birth. She was 90 years old. God fulfills his word to his people. 
God fulfilled his word to David and to Moses and to Isaac and to Jacob and to Abraham. The judgment that is often seen on the Israelites over and over for their sin demonstrates that God promised he would send them into exile if they did not heed his word. If they didn't take his word seriously. We have the Babylonians and the Syrians and the Persians and the Romans. Over and over again, because God's people don't take his word seriously, they're judged as a result. Abraham, finally, even after God shows up, had to listen from God to heed his word, even after Sarah had said it, because he had known in the past that he hadn't heeded it in the right way and gotten himself into all sorts of trouble as a result. But when he hears God's word, when God speaks to him directly, when he hears the very words of God, he obeys them. This applies to all Christians as well. God promises certain things to his people. And as a result of those promises, we should then heed his word, knowing that all the promises that he does give his people will empower us every day for every act that we would ever accomplish before him. He promises to pour out his spirit on the Christian and to empower them for service. And so he does. We see in Acts 2. He promises to save them completely. And so he does. Philippians 1.6 says that he will work out that work that he's begun. He will complete it. He promises to fill up the hungry soul. And so he does. Those who hunger and thirst after righteousness will be filled. Matthew 5.6 says. He promises to forgive all their sins. And so he does. 1 John 1.6-9 says that if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive them. He promises to teach us, Christians, all things through the Spirit. And so he does. John 14, 26 was a promise to the disciples as they recalled all of the works of Christ that we have recorded all through the gospel. He promises to reveal all promises to the church. And so he does. As Psalm 84, 1 and 2 says that he does reveal his promises to his people. He promises to sanctify Christians, and so he does. 1 Thessalonians 4.3 says, this is the will of God, your sanctification. He promises to give us Christ as the cornerstone of the faith, and so he has. Ephesians 2.20 says that Christ is our cornerstone. He promises to protect and preserve the church, and so he does. 1 Peter 5 2 and 7 says that God preserves and upholds his saints. He promises to return for the faithful that remain faithful. As Revelations 21, 3 and 9 says, Behold, I come quickly. God is faithful. So he must keep his promises out of necessity. From the foundations of the world, he has a plan that he's going to carry out. It involves his people they who are faithful, he is more faithful. And he upholds his word, always does what he says he's going to do. And so we see that God, here in this first point, will always fulfill his word to his people at every time. Secondly, that his people 
are to take his word that he promises seriously. Seriously. Isaiah 66, 2. God says on this one I will look. He who is poor and of a contrite spirit and who trembles at my word. That's the one that God will look at. That is the one that God will show his face toward. Those who take his word seriously tremble at his word because his word is very great. It and God's name and God's being are intimately connected together. We read this morning out of Luke chapter 9 demonstrating disciples and, and discipleship and how his apostles went out and were given power to do things, to give out God's word, to preach God's word, to heal, to cast out demons, all of these things the disciples did, which included Judas. And remember, Judas heard all of Christ's sermons. Judas heard all of Christ's instruction. Judas was very intimately aware of God's word growing up as one who was studied in God's word in the synagogue. But he didn't tremble at God's word. He didn't take God's word seriously. It was joy to him only for a moment. God takes his word seriously. His word is a reflection of his character. It is a reflection of his attributes. It's tied to his name, which is why when we deal with the third commandment and not taking God's name in vain, it's not only swearing, it's simply misusing the scripture. It's misquoting the scripture. God takes his word very seriously because he's so closely tied to it. That is why Christ is the eternal logos, the word. God takes his word seriously, and so should each and every person who calls themselves a Christian. God takes his word so seriously that he vowed with Abraham in Genesis 15 to be killed if he did not uphold his word, as a demonstration of when he passed through the torn pieces of the sacrifices as the smoking fire pot and torch. As what has done to these animals be done to me, if I don't uphold what I have said. That's how serious God is about his word. And the word serious means weighty and severe and grave and solemn and earnest in it. And Christians should heed every word of God's word in that manner. For the word of God, there is no light or trivial aspect. From the genealogies which people often so skip to the historical narrative of the king's which many find drudgery to read through to the Levitical laws that people don't find very exciting, God sees all his word and every aspect of it important. If you were going to die today and you knew it, what would you tell your children? What would you say to them? Moses said, if you do not carefully observe all the words of this law that are written in this book, that you may fear this glorious and awesome name, the Lord your God, or Yahweh your God, then the Lord will bring upon you and your descendants extraordinary plagues, great and prolonged plagues, and serious and prolonged illnesses. That's what Moses said in Deuteronomy 28, 58 and 59, when he was going to die. Listen to the word, God takes his word seriously, and you should as well. Paul says the same thing in another way. 
All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. 2 Timothy 3.16 It is a serious matter to be a Christian who is entrusted with the word of God. Jude 3 says, The faith, the entire body of doctrine, has so been once delivered into your hands. So you should see it as a very serious occupation to be a Christian. Thirdly, that as people, when they take God's word seriously, show it. Abraham did. Abraham, when he saw the fulfillment of the word of God before his eyes and his son Isaac, named him Isaac, as God instructed, and circumcised him, placing the sign of the covenant upon him, as the Lord commanded. Christians must seriously show forth the seriousness of God's word. How is that done? It's done by putting the word of God into action. If a person holds God's word in high esteem, they'll labor to do what the word says. And it's not enough for a person to say that they're a Christian. They have to show forth that they're a Christian, and they're putting to action the word of God, which Abraham did. The tares are so brought to light in this way, because they're the ones who do nothing but say much. They're spotted easily in the church. Or they are possibly the ones who do things, but mainly for selfish gain in some way. Christians cannot put the word of God to use unless they know the word of God first. So if you're Abraham and you're going to put the word of God into action, you have to know what God said first to name your son Isaac, to circumcise him as God commanded him. So the endeavor is to come to a greater understanding and intimate knowledge of God's word. Because without it, one cannot serve the God that they claim. Jesus in Luke 2 amazed the scholars. He amazes them as he spends all his time in the temple teaching and learning. And so God, in his promises to fill up those who hunger for righteousness, filled up Christ with more wisdom, knowledge, and understanding in his human nature. This is Luke chapter 2. This is the 12-year-old who spent all his time in the temple teaching and learning. And certainly it was of benefit that Christ was God, for in this way he was the living word manifested, but still, that's where he spent his time. That's where his mother and father found him. And if Christians want to use the scriptures in a serious way, they need only to look at the example of Christ to see the word of God put to its best use. Jesus was the living word in action. Christians must have faith and works to show forth their savedness. That's why James says, so faith without works is dead. It's not that by works that we gain faith or justified by works or somehow get the deposit of faith if we do certain things well. By works, no one is justified. By the law, no one is justified because we're all dead in sin. But once we have the faith that God places in us through regeneration, works will inevitably follow. It is impossible that they don't. Those kinds of people who have no faith 
or dead faith, they only give God's word lip service. They're very much like Mr. Byans in Pilgrim's Progress. He was out for his own gain. He was out not for the glory of God, but whatever the wind of religion happened to push him here or there or however. Whatever ends might come about, whatever ends might be most profitable for him, he would take up. That's just giving God's word lip service. Christians must have faith and works to show forth their savedness, to demonstrate that it's a lively faith, a true faith, a real faith. And this is what Abraham did. Fourthly, people do not take God's word seriously when they're lost. When people are lost, they only show a form of godliness, but they deny its power. Oh, these people will go to church, they'll tithe and pray and read their Bibles, but in their lifestyle, they deny the true power of God working in the word through them. Remember, godliness must be seen in greater measure than what the hypocrite can accomplish. Salvation must be seen more in the Christian than what hypocrites can do. The Greek word hypocrites means pretend. They are pretenders. The Pharisees were hypocrites. They were those who pretended to get into the kingdom of God. Now, they thought they were getting in, but they were pretenders. Lost people can't understand the word of God to rightly apply it. That's why Romans clearly states, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. The difference between being in the flesh and being in the spirit. Being regenerate and not. Wisdom is the right application of knowledge. These people cannot please God. They cannot be wise in God's word. They cannot rightly apply knowledge. If the sign says do not walk and you walk and get hit by the bus and die, that was not the right application of the knowledge at hand. Lost people don't have the capacity to rightly apply the knowledge that comes from God, because they cannot understand spiritual things. That is why Hagar, even after being spoken to by God in the wilderness, upon the point of death, and God rescued her, she went back to Egypt. This is where all those who claim to be Christians must ask themselves if they rightly apply the word of God in their lives. If they don't, there's a warrant for fear. Not only do they not understand, but they are wickedly oppressed by the word. Those of the world mock and scoff the word of God and the promises that are held in it. That is what Ishmael did to Isaac. He didn't believe God. And this wasn't a six or seven year old. This was a teenager who had grown up in Abraham's house, who had grown up under his teaching about the one true God, about the promised seed. And he scoffed it. The promise was made. It was undoubtedly told to Ishmael by Abraham and finally came to pass by the hand of God. And when the scene came, Ishmael mocked him. Ishmael was no longer in the limelight and didn't like that. These are the ones in which the psalmist says, let death seize them. Let them go down alive into hell, 
for wickedness is in their dwellings and among them. Psalm 55:15. Those who are oppressed by the word in this way are described as adulterers and fornicators and unclean and lewd and idolaters and sorcerers and haters and contentious, jealous, wrathful, selfish, heretics, envious, murderers, drunks, revelers, and the like. It's the list Paul gives in Galatians 5, 19-21, of which he says, do not inherit the kingdom of God. Those who are unclean do not inherit the kingdom of God. Those who are jealous do not inherit the kingdom of God. Those who are envious do not inherit the kingdom of God. This was Ishmael. He didn't heed God's word. And Paul makes the, distinct, the distinction between Hagar and her son and Sarah and her son as the wicked and the godly in Galatians 4.28. Hagar is typified as the bondwoman who enslaves, which is seen in Ishmael, and Sarah is the free woman who gives birth to the promised seed. And she is of the household of faith. The lost are of Hagar's line. The saved of Sarah's line. Demonstrating right from the very beginning, the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. So we see those exceedingly important points. That God has always fulfilled his word to his people. That his people are to take his word seriously. That his people, when they take God's word seriously, show it or demonstrate it. And people who do not take God's word seriously demonstrate themselves as lost. Now, some might say, how is, how is it that this text applies to us? We don't have children or have a promise in this manner. We're not going to have a promised seed. Well, the fulfillment of God's word to us is Jesus Christ. And it's demonstrated as a fulfillment of this passage. Jesus is the epitome of God's fulfillment in these words in which we've read in Genesis 21, 1-21. to The God-man fulfills hundreds of scriptures of prophecy and demonstrate to us that in the same way that God communicated his miraculous power to Abraham, Sarah, and Hagar, so through Christ and the fulfillment of everything that he's done from this passage demonstrates a fulfillment for us as Christians that we should also take heed of and not scoff at. Christ is the promised seed. Prophecy promised and fulfilled. Here's just a few. He's born of the seed of the woman. Genesis 3.15 and Galatians 4.4. 4. He's born of a virgin, Isaiah 7.14 and Matthew 1. He is the Son of God, Psalm 2 and Matthew 3.17. He's the seed of Abraham, Genesis 22.18 and Matthew 1.1. 1, 1. He is a prophet, Deuteronomy 18.18 18 and Matthew 21.11. He shall be a priest, Psalm 110.4, Hebrews chapter 3, verse 1 and 5, 5 and 6. He shall be a king, Matthew 2.6. Uh, Matthew 27:37 in Psalm 2:6. He was preceded by a messenger. Isaiah 40 in verse 3 in Matthew chapter 3. He entered Jerusalem on a donkey. 
He betrayed. He was betrayed by a friend. He was sold for 30 pieces of silver. He was mocked. His hands and his feet were pierced. He was buried in a rich man's tomb. He was resurrected. He ascended. All of these scriptures, these double quotes, Psalm 22, 7 and 8, and Matthew 27, 31, demonstrate the promise of God's word and then demonstrate the fulfillment of what Christ did. And even one of these is a scientific impossibility for Christ to have fulfilled without some supernatural divine intervention. And once you move past three prophecies that are clear and precise, you're into the absurd scientifically without God's help. So we demonstrate that Christ not only fulfilled one or three, but hundreds of clearly articulated Old Testament prophecies to be fulfilled and demonstrate in the New Testament they are fulfilled, that we should take his word seriously in the light of what Christ has done for us. In light of what Christ has accomplished for us as the promised seed, we as Christians should take his word seriously in our lives. We should put much weight into the word of God. And other Christians should be able to see the Word of God in action every time we go into action. Wherever we are, whatever we do, whatever gifts we've been gifted with by the Holy Spirit, there they should see Christ. It should be said of you, as it was said of Bunyan, that if we should cut you, you should bleed the Bible. Not only should Christians bleed the Bible in that analogy, but they should sweat it as well. In every action, in every instance, we should be standing firmly upon the Word of God and believing and upholding the promises. You've all heard the little expression that if you were arrested for being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? Well, all Christians should have an overwhelming amount of evidence that the world would immediately stop the trial and throw us into the gas chamber. The evidence should abound, and not just Christianese, not just Christian talk, but action. Action based on faithful understanding of God's word and true doctrine. Because Christians who have evidence of being Christian take the word of God seriously, and they hold fast to the promises of God and the promises of Christ in their life. We take the evidence of our Christianity wherever we go, not just to church. And it is Sin for us not to hold the word of God with high regard and to tremble before it. God will not, as Isaiah says, pay attention to us if we don't hold the word in high regard, which is what Isaiah 66.2 is talking about, as I've already read. We have to take it seriously that God would shine his face on us. And if we don't take it seriously, it's probably because we're unable to, as Ishmael was. We might live under the headship of the bondwoman Hagar, and may need to be redeemed by the promised seed, who is Christ, and may need to repent. We have to demonstrate the faith that lies in us. The Christian must have a renewed interest in the word daily. We want to have a fostering and festering amount of the word in our heart and in our mind that presses us to have a great interest in it. And if we have a great interest in the word... God will have an interest in us. Is that some sort of barter? If I have an interest in it, then he'll have an interest in me. It has to do with sanctification. 
that having an interest in the word is the means by which we're sanctified. And being washed by the word, as the scriptures tell us, we are sanctified and conformed to the image of Christ. Without that interest, without that, that tickle that we just can't get rid of, that just keeps causing us to cough, so to speak, or that itch that just won't go away even though we scratch it, as we continue to have that concerning the word, God uses that word to wash us. The need for examination under the word will sanctify us. We exemplify this. God will shine his face on us. We have to ask, do we exemplify this in our lives or not? Are we like Abraham, who upon the moment that God spoke to him, commanded him that he did all that God had said? Everyone should see your heavenly conversation. And conversation is not just speaking or talking. Conversation is the old world usage of the idea that wherever you are and whatever you do, you're demonstrating a certain sermon. Your life is a sermon. It is like it's speaking, it's telling people what you're like and who you are. Let everyone see your heavenly conversation. Because you're either going to exemplify heavenly things, as it is the duty of the Christian, or you will exemplify hellish wickedness, as Ishmael did. You're either going to uphold the word spoken or not. And the word spoken is found in the text of the Bible. Everything that God wants us to know is found in the scriptures. From Genesis to Revelation and nowhere else. God has so providentially secured and kept under guard his word for thousands of years that Christians who know that word know the God of that word. And as a result, if they keep it, if they uphold it, if they do everything that God has spoken and commanded, they demonstrate themselves as believing Abraham. And they take God seriously in his word. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for upholding us, O Lord, that you might wash us by your word in this passage in which the promised seed comes. Yet, we find that one mocked and one did what you commanded. Abraham and Sarah followed you. Hagar and Ishmael rejected you. We pray, O God, that you would help us to mimic the father of our faith. Help us to mimic believing Abraham. That in our life we might demonstrate not only a seriousness to the word, but an outward action showing forth that seriousness. And we so pray these things so that we might be conformed into the image of Christ who is the living word who dwells in us and has made his abode with us through the Spirit. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. 
We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.